All right. What is the heart? Lesson number one. And we're going to call this the threefold nature of man because we must lay a foundation. But it's not just the threefold nature of man. Then we must also introduce the nature of the problem or the heart problem. And so as I have said, I just returned from preaching out west and I covered this because I was asked to teach on the conscience, which I love to teach on. But I cannot teach on the conscience without first talking about what the heart is. And for our circles, which is kind of non-denominational word of faith, we have a great foundation of teaching, but our pioneers who went before us only went so far. That's the nature of pioneering effort. We don't begrudge that. We don't criticize it. Thank God they pioneered. The pioneers from 200 years ago in our nation did an incredible job with covered wagons. They weren't fast, but bless God, they pioneered the West, and we build upon them. So anything I teach contrary to our fathers is not meant to diminish them. It's to build upon them. They only get so many years, and then they have to go home to heaven. And who knows, if God had given them another 30 or 40 years, they wouldn't have pioneered what we understand today. So I, I don't ever mean to cross-plow anybody. Uh, now, sometimes I know I do, but it isn't to put them down. It's just to say, I have studied. I found 30 more scriptures that give us a better illumination. So let's walk in that illumination. And that's when we must be like the noble Bereans and say, hmm, I hear you. I'm going to go home and study that for myself. I'm not going to disparage you because I disagree. I'm not going to call you a heretic. I can see it in the scriptures, but I ain't never heard this before. And at least be able to say, I ain't never heard this before, but I'm seeing it in 15 verses that I ain't never seen before and go look at it. So this is the threefold nature of man and the heart problem. And I must say this from the get-go. This is a doctrine I have studied for 20 years now probably really was scratching at in the late 90s. That makes it 23, 24 years ago. But I remember being on a job as a geologist working on a Texas roadhouse. And then another job I was on called Therogenics in the Oak Ridge National Laboratory Complex. And on both of those job sites, in between testing materials, which is what I was doing, I was writing in my field book the revelation that I'm now teaching. I was working it out, preaching to myself, had my pocket New Testament with me, was running through all the scriptures on the heart. So this is a, a doctrine I've been working out for 23, 24 years on paper, probably 20 years, probably at least 20 years, maybe 21 years. So we have proven this very thoroughly. When I taught this to us in 2008, I spent two years proving it on Wednesday nights, and we ran every scripture there was in the Bible on it, over 750 scriptures on the heart, and proved it very thoroughly. And most importantly, if we are accurate in this, it's going to make perfect sense. You're going to go, a duh. That, was, that just makes sense, and it'll explain every situation we can come across. So I have to systematically present that because it is relatively new, uh, maybe to our circles. Though I did have one gentleman tell me after I taught some of this uh, out west, he said, I have been looking at this for years, and you just put into words what I've been struggling to communicate. And I thought, praise God. So it bears witness. But I also noticed some of the old timers, they... They kind of sat down a little bit, and I don't blame them because I was contradicting heroes of the faith. And we don't do that lightly. We don't do that flippantly, but heroes of the faith die at some point, and we build upon them. Amen. All right, so let's look at some scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body, the Greek says pneuma, suke, soma be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, presents us with spirit, soul, and body. 
Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. There is suke and pneuma. And of the joints and marrow, that would be representative of soma, the body. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So in both those verses in the New Testament, we see spirit, soul, and body presented. Man is a spirit, he possesses a soul, and he lives in a body. That's all of us. We understand that. That's pretty elementary doctrine for us today, but it was not so 50 years ago in this nation, not even with 400 years of seminaries. This is called the doctrine of the tripartite nature of man, or also the triune nature. Tripartite, of course, means three parts. Triune means three in unison. However, the Bible also speaks of man's heart and man's conscience. So we got to sort that out. Spirit, soul, body, heart, conscience. These lessons will seek to systematically explain the heart and conscience of man. And this is very critical for the day we live in. Something you guys have heard me said many, many times is that your heart is up for grabs. And whoever has it steers the world. Who, Paul said there's many voices in the earth. None of them is of signification. And so whoever has your ear has your heart. And that's why we're very careful with who we give our ear to and who we give our eyes to. Because whoever has your ears and your eyes will get your heart. And you've got to be very careful who you get your heart to. Because we also know our heart can be stolen. That's what the Bible says of Absalom. Over the course of four years, he stole the heart of Israel away from their greatest king. Slow and methodical. And he did it through pleasantries and politics. So let's talk about the history of the tripartite doctrine just to give you a foundation to let you know how thoroughly I have studied this over the years. For much of recent modern doctrine, uh, for much of recent time, modern doctrine viewed the soul and the spirit as the same entity. I remember listening to Brother Summerall talk about this, and he said he was talking to Billy Graham about it once, and he mentioned about the spirit and the soul, and Billy Graham even told him, wait, they're different? I thought they were the same. So even someone as great as Billy Graham, who only went to heaven within the last three or four years, back in the 60s and 70s, still thought the spirit and the soul were the same thing. Tripartite doctrine has only recently been rediscovered. And we say rediscovered because it, it's always been there. It was held in seasons and then forgotten. Just like much of the church today is forgetting very critical doctrine because we're interested in politics and entertainment. We're not interested in the gospel of Christ. Pentecostal pioneers such as Kenneth E. Hagan and Dr. Lester Sumrall taught it extensively and helped to spread the doctrine. I quote them specifically because I've studied after them thoroughly. I own probably all of their books, if not 90% of them, and have listened to hundreds of hours of both of them preach and teach. Prior to them, the only two ministers I have found promoting tripartite doctrine was the Chinese pastor and author Watchman Nee, he died in 1972, and the American theologian, Dr. Clarence Larkin. Clarence Larkin died in the early, I think, 20s or 30s. So Nee's Spiritual Man, which I own a copy of, it's a monster of a book. Uh, it was published in 1968. He expounded upon the subject, and Dr. Larkin's Dispensational Truth, published in 1918, did likewise, uh, but 50 years prior to Watchman Nee. These are the two earliest in the last 150 years that I found writing on spirit, soul, and body. And they came at it from totally different perspectives, but they resulted or their result was the same doctrine, that man is a spirit, he has a soul, 
He lives in a body. Larkin did it studying the inner court, outer court, and the Holy of Holies. That's how he cracked the code, which I think is so cool. The Holy of Holies, the, mo uh, the most holy place, the outer co uh, inner court, then the outer court. Um, so the spiritual man, Watchman Nee, did it. He could see very readily that the soul was mind, will, and emotions, and that got him thinking about trinities, the rule of threes. So then he was able to kind of look at the body, and he realized that the body was blood, bone, and sinew or tissue. And so then he said, well, maybe man's a three-part being, and he found spirit, soul, and body. He took it a step too far, and he, he taught in the spiritual man that the spirit has three parts. He said the spirit is conscience, fellowship, and intuition. And that's just taking it too far because I could probably shoot holes in two out of those three. Fellowship is about the only one we could, fellow, we could offer as part of the spirit man. We fellowship with God. But then again, if he manifests in our service, our body feels his fellowship too. So anyway, he just kept seeing threes, and so he's looking for threes everywhere. And so we disagree with him there, but it doesn't mean he wasn't a great pioneer because he was teaching this in China way before the Baptists even thought of it. Good for him. However, the tripartite doctrine was thoroughly established and widely held in the early modern period of European history. Early chemist, and it's spelled that way on purpose, Theophrastus von Hohenheim. How would you like it if that was your name? You know you're getting beat up every day on your way home from school. Look at little Theo. He was also called Paracelsus. He died in 1541, if that tells you how long ago this was. He was one of the early chemists. He taught, quote, that all substances were composed of three primary ingredients, mercury, sulfur, and salt, a terrestrial trinity called in the Latin the Trea Prima, that mirrored the divine trinity and the triune nature of man, body, soul, and spirit. This early chemist held the doctrine of the tripartite so much that it affected his scientific theories. Pretty cool. So the man who wrote this was Dr. Lawrence Principi out of John Hopkins. I've communicated with him. We've emailed back and forth quite a bit. I said, can you give me other evidence that the medieval church held this doctrine? He said, no, it's everywhere. That's like asking for evidence they believed in the Trinity. That's how wide the tripartite doctrine was also held by the saints in that day. He said it's in all their writings, it's in all their journals, it's in all their commentaries. It was just a common doctrine to them. So it makes me wonder how in the world did it take Brother Hagen or Brother Sumrall to the 1960s and 70s to scratch out what the church held 500 years ago. It just shows you that churches don't think generationally and hand our things to the next generation. We're raising our kids on TikTok and Instagram, and so they don't know God. So a doctrine will be lost and have to be rediscovered, probably in an internment camp somewhere. It would seem what's old is new again. So let's talk about this real quick. Man is a spirit. For many of you, this is common doctrine, and we're reviewing, but I want to put it out there for those who may discover this curriculum in the future. You are a spirit being. Proverbs 20, 27 says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. That verse, by the way, also tells us where our spirit man lives. It's in our belly. Our spirit man is not in our head. It's not in our chest. It's down here in our gut. Why? Because that's the way God wants it. It's not in our foot, not in our elbow. Plus, if your gut gets cut in half, you're pretty much dead. You can lose arms and legs and still exist. Your spirit man is the real you. 
God has breathed into all people the breath of life. John 1, 9 says, He is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the earth. And, of course, John 2, 7 talks about breathing into man the breath of life, and he became a quickening a living soul or a quickening spirit. This, is, this breath of life is our spirit man. First uh, John calls him the father of spirits. And so we won't go any further than that. There's a lot of weird, wonky doctrines about how God takes a portion of himself and puts it in every individual. And that gets to be a little too Mormonistic for me, a little too maybe Scientological. And so we reject that. We just say, hey, he's the father of spirits. You have a spirit? Hey, he's your father. You got to be born again to be born again. We are made in God's image and after his likeness. Part of God's image and likeness is spirit. That is the part of us that lives forever. God is a spirit and he has made man to be a spirit as well. The New Testament often refers to our spirit man as our inner man. And so be mindful of that. That's the real you. You have the inner man and then you have what's called the old man and then the new man. The new man, of course, is synonymous with our inner man. The spirit of man is what will live forever. And so as a side note, we should point out everybody lives forever. Our relationship with Jesus Christ determines where. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you go to hell. In fact, our famous verse, John 3, 16, in the Greek, it says, For whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but the Greek believeth is believe and keep on believing. Because just because you believed once doesn't mean you still do. It requires that you believe and keep on believing. You'll not perish but have eternal life. All people, whether Christian or heathen, non-believers, will live forever because spirits are eternal. Born-again spirits get to go to heaven. Dead spirits must go to hell. But you're still alive. You're just dead to God. The spirit of man is a part of man that must be born again. Remember Paul said in Romans, I was alive once, but when the law came, sin revived and I died. Where did he die? In his spirit, man. The Lord told Adam and Eve, in the day that thou shalt eat it, thou, uh, eat it, thou shalt surely die. They ate it, but their bodies didn't die for 900 years. So what died? Their spirit. And that's why Jesus Christ came along and said, you must be born again. Nicodemus asked the question, how can that happen? Do I crawl back in my mother's womb? Nope. Whatsoever is born of spirit is spirit. And so we understand this as very, very basic soteriology, the study of salvation. We are born again in our spirit that brings eternal life into our innermost being, and that's what kills the body of death. It cuts off its effect. We no longer have to keep sinning because we are born again in our spirit of the image and nature and likeness of God Almighty. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily now dwells in us through the new birth. That's why you can be delivered from any attitude, any addiction, any sin, any appetite. Until then, you are doomed to it. It is like you're chained to it, and if the boulder gets tossed, you go over with it. But the new birth cuts that chain from the body of death, and you can quit anything you need to quit, and you can start anything you need to start, so we have to stop using lame excuses. If you're born again, you're able. Amen. Curse your excuses to hell and you might make heaven. Amen. Being born again produces the following effect in our spirit man. No particular order. The spirit of man becomes a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's pretty good. Old things are passing away. That's our next bullet point. And all things become new and they are all now of God. The old man has passed away through the newness of life. That is in Christ Jesus. That's what takes place in our spirit, man. 
It's called the new man because the old goes bye-bye. Uh, Pastor Vaughn was, was fond of saying, we're a brand new species of being that has never before ever existed. That's the new birth. Thank God. You're a species that doesn't, never existed. It's created, Ephesians says, that new man is created in righteousness and true holiness. Not the holiness of the Pharisees, not the holiness of do-goodism, but it's created in true holiness. That is the divine essence of God. He is one that is truly holy. Now, we're not God. We've just been born again. He is now our Father. We take upon us His nature. And then 1 Peter 1 reminds us it's born again of incorruptible seed. That is, it's born again of the Word of God forever. Uh, one of our sayings in our circles that is biblically inaccurate, and I've heard it many times, some of you have had, is somebody will be preaching, they'll say, you need to get this down into your spirit. That's not possible because you're born again of the Word of God. That's your spiritual DNA. Remember, our theme verse as a church is James 1.21, lay aside all superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted Word. The, it's, our, it's our name, but it's wrong. Engrafted in the Greek is not engrafted. It is uh, inborn, inbred. It, it's more of a genetic term than it is a grafting of two branches together. So what it says in the Greek is receive with meekness the word that's already born in you, which is able to save your soul. Where is it born in you? It's born in your spirit, man. But just because it's in your spirit, man, doesn't mean your soul has been delivered We've all, this morning, we're all testimonies to that fact. You're all born again, but your souls ain't all fixed yet. We got squirrely thinking, squirrely emotions, squirrely wants. So our theme verse, James 1.21, receive with meekness the inborn word, which is able to save our soul. We've been born again of the word of God. It's, it is our spirit, man. That's what saved us. But just because it's done here in your spirit, man, doesn't mean you ever process it, ever tap into it, ever harness it, ever make use of it. And so uh, we've been born again of incorruptible seed of the word of God that lives and abides forever. So that's the nature of our spirit, man. Now let's talk about our soul. You have been given a soul, James 1.21. It must be saved, healed, delivered, made whole. James 1.21 is not a salvation from hell verse. It's a salvation from yourself verse <laughs> uh, because he's writing to born-again believers. Why are we trying to save the eternal soul of a born-again believer if it's the same thing? It's not. We could break it down and say the word of God which is able to save your mind, your will, and your emotions. You've been given a soul. That's what we've processed the whole of the world with. Your soul can be further broken down into three parts, and we know this very well. We know that our soul is our mind, our will, and our emotions, and our mind is our thoughts, our intellect, our understanding, our comprehension, etc. And I have taught this and will continue to teach it. You need to harness your mind so that it sits still like a calculator when you don't need it. It's just always there, like horsepower on tap, CPU in your computer processing, uh, in your computer that's there ready to be used, but it doesn't do anything until you use it. What a lot of Christians do is their mind just spins, 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 and they are physically exhausted because they've never disciplined their mind. Physical exhaustion, when it's physical exhaustion, is cured by one night's sleep. But if you habitually are exhausted, it's probably because you have not disciplined your mind. 
We were watching TV last night, and there came on medicine for bipolar disorder. And I just shook my head at it. My girls are watching. We're watching a football game. And I said, girls, because we're working with our girls on controlling their emotions, because even girls at seven and nine have emotions that are all over the place. And we just stay on it, not ruthlessly. We just stay on it, disciplined. I said, girls, that drug is for people that were never taught how to control their emotions. And Abigail's eyes got really big because I could see she was processing what that meant. We're teaching you girls how to control your emotions so you don't lose your mind and need to live on drugs the rest of your life. So this is why we discipline you. This is why I will snap at you and say, get a hold of your emotions, sweetie. This is not what we're going to cry about. And I think they could really see it and appreciate it. So she said, all those people uh, have to have medicine. I said, no, sweetie, all those people are actors. But what it represents are people who were never taught to control their emotions and their mind just ran away with them. And now they have to have a pill on a regular basis to control what the Bible says we can control if we want to. And then, of course, I got a little tickled at the side effects. I'm trying to fix bipolar, but it can produce schizophrenia. Psychotic breaks. Now, if you don't know, a psychotic break means you manifest a demon. That's code for psychotic break. So I'm trying to take a pill that controls my mood swings, but the side effect can be psychosis, which is full manifestation of a demon. If, we, if I can just give you American Psychological Association glossary term key. So I just told my girls, so we're going to control our emotions, all right? Yes, Daddy. Go Tigers, and the game comes back on. So then you have your will. That's your volition, your desires, your intentions, your purpose. Remember that heretic Rick Warren wrote a book called Purpose Driven. Total heretic. He also promotes chrysalom. Don't listen to that book. Don't read it. Flush it. Burn it. Use it as a door prop if you want to, or I don't know, shoot guns at it. That's about what it's worth. Purpose-driven is full of heresy. Purpose-driven is full of heresy. And anybody that promotes that book is sowing heresy into their disciples. Our purpose is Christ. He admitted he wrote New Age Doctrine in that book to get it into the church. And I still have friends that promote that heresy because it helps. Seriously? Then you have your emotions. Almost every emotion we have was first found in God. Joy, sorrow, anger, delight, jealousy, wrath. One of the exceptions I find is fear. There's no fear in God, but it's, a, it's an emotion from the curse. It's the one emotion forbidden more than anything else in the Bible. Over 360 times the Bible says, fear not. Now we reverence, and that gets translated as fear, but this is terror fear. We are commanded. That may be, somebody ought to do the study, that may be the most frequent commandment in the whole Bible the most commanded commandment. He doesn't even say, don't kill that many times. And yet, for 360 plus commandments of fear not, this emotion defines most modern Christians. So, not to swallow you up with hopelessness, but think about it. You're afraid, but while you're in fear, you're also in sin. Because the moment you live in fear, you violate 360 scriptures at once. Here's the salvation for us. We all have fear somewhere. And given the victory, we would take it. 
but are we willing to labor and to contend for it and go stare our fear in the face, breathe it in, hear the volume of our heart and say, I curse you fear to hell. I will do whatever it takes to beat this insecurity, because that's fear, that jealousy, that's fear, that timidity, that's fear. Amen. Amen. All right. So that's your emotions. All three of these must be trained to operate according to the Bible, mind, will, and emotions. Your soul is your stewardship and responsibility. If you don't control it, something will. Something's always going to control your soul. It's up to you to do it. Somebody else will. Weak-minded people are manipulated. Emotional people are manipulated. Lazy people are manipulated. The only way to be 100% in control is to get God in control. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean your mind will think properly or godly. Just because you are saved doesn't mean your will is submitted to God's will. And just because you're a new creature in Christ Jesus doesn't mean you know how to properly use your emotions. Amen to that. The process of training your mind, will, and emotions to conform to God's word is what the Bible calls the saving of your soul. And the more we can discipline our mind and the more we can discipline our will and the more we can discipline our emotions, the more disciplined our whole life will be. And we won't need psychotropic drugs. I hate drugs. I hate pharmaceutical drugs. I'll take them if I need them, but I don't want to be dependent upon them, especially to control my brain. When the Bible tells me how to do it myself, if I just quit being lazy and speak to it. Amen. Then finally, man inhabits a body because we got to get moving here. Christians too often put this part first. Often our bodies are more real to us than our spirit man. And that should not be the case. One day we will all put off our bodies and pass into eternity. Why would you worship something today that's dying? Why worship your body and give it what it wants today when it's slowly dying? Why invest in a dead horse? You only get one body, so take good care of it. We don't want to bury you early. Dr. Lester Sumrall once said, Your spirit man should be king, your soul should be your servant, and your body should be your slave. And we often reverse those. And that's evident through appetites, obesity, video games, soda pop addiction, cigarette addiction, vaping, anything where your fleshy appetite controls you, oversleeping, always late. Hey, did you know it was, we just did fall back. We'll have folks late this morning, I promise you. They got an extra hour, but they'll still manage to be late. But they won't be for their boss. So they are yet carnal. Amen. As Christians, our bodies now belong to God because they are the temple of His Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is not ours to use as we please, but should be presented to Him for use as He sees fit. We must work to keep our body and its desires under. Our bodies contain the sin nature with all of its evil appetites. That's why it's called this body of death. Your soma, your body, contains sarks, sin nature, and you can't get it out. We could cut every limb off, replace every organ. We could honestly probably nearly reconstitute you with titanium skeleton, uh, carbon fiber muscles or uh, animatronics or robotic limbs, and there'd be nothing but a little bit of tissue and you would still have a sin nature. I, when I worked retail, I was amazed at how many folks rolled into our stores 
in a wheelchair because they were missing legs and they still shoplifted. They're half the man they used to be, but they still steal. There was this one guy, he had a hidden compartment under his seat and he would rise up and stuff stuff as he would shoplift. Because who's going to call out a wheelchair man for shoplifting? Your profit and loss prevention officer or whatever they were called. He would. I don't think he had a problem tackling a man out of a wheelchair. You can clothesline him, you just got to get low. If we feed the evil appetites, we will develop a monster. If we starve the evil appetites, we will succeed in suppressing the same monster. The human body has often been called our earth suit because once it dies, you got to go home. With all of our knowledge of science, dietary science, health and fitness, there's no reason for us to bury anybody early anymore except that your flesh owns you and you refuse to bring it into captivity. The heart problem. Go back and look at Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Upon closer evaluation, our theme verse points out a fourth aspect about man's makeup that cannot be overlooked. Man is not just a spirit. Man does not just possess a soul. Man does not just dwell in a body. Man also possesses a heart... And this heart contains hidden thoughts and intentions that only the Word of God can discern and know. Thoughts refer to the mind, and intentions refer to the will. With our will, we intend things. With our mind, we think things. This alludes to the fact that the heart acts like the mind and the will. And this begins to feed our forthcoming definition of what the heart is. The problematic question then is this, what exactly is the heart? This is a question we've spent 12 years in this church proving, but I'm answering it for those who may find this to be a brand new subject. It has traditionally been held and taught that just as the spirit and soul were once viewed as the same entity, the heart and the spirit are likewise the same entity. A brief review of scripture will reveal that this is impossible. The heart and the spirit cannot be the same thing. It is impossible. It is impossible. It is impossible. It is impossible for the heart and the spirit to be the same thing. And that is what snags old timers in the word of faith circles because we were taught they are the same thing. Pastor Vaughn taught we are the same, they were the same thing. And so we just have to be open to having a better understanding. This is critical because if we know what the heart is, we can change it. I am all for understanding the mechanics of anything so I can make it better. Now, this is where we stop and we give you a disclaimer. As we advance this subject, you're going to be totally responsible for changing every bit of who you are because we're going to show you how to do it A, B, C, 1, 2, 3. Therefore, we'll have no excuse to keep our heart the same as touching any subject. Maybe the best we can do is be honest and say, I'm here. My wife uses this analogy. I'm here on a mesa in the middle of the Grand Canyon, and I know I need to be at the southern rim, but I have no idea how to get there. At least be honest and say, I am here, and God's word says I need to be there. And that's when you cry out to God for help. But understanding this will show you how you can begin to get from that mesa in the middle of the Grand Canyon to where you're supposed to be with a great gulf in between. 
If the heart and the born-again spirit are the same thing, even though they are two different words in both Hebrew and Greek, we must consider the possible implications. So here are 13 reasons why the spirit and the heart are different entities. Number one, the heart is desperately wicked and curably sick. This verse is still applicable to those who have been recreated in the likeness of Christ. The treatment for a sick heart involves the Lord examining it. He says in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, try the, uh, uh, the reins. I examine the hearts. If our heart and our spirit are the same, it means God is examining our desperately sick spirit. That sounds like heresy. Then I'm not born again. If the Lord has to examine my spirit, I'm not born again. Number two, the Lord still searches the hearts and minds even to those in his church. That's what Revelation 2.23 says. So we can't disqualify Jeremiah 17.9 and say, well, that's Old Testament. That's before you could be born again. When the Lord said, actually in Romans 8 says it as well, that the Lord searches the hearts. And that's addressing New Testament believers. So why does the Lord have to search something that is flawless? It's not flawless. They're two different entities. The born of spirit does not require examination. It is seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Number three, faith is of the heart, not the spirit. We'll examine that more in a future lesson. If faith was of the spirit, we'd all have the same amount of faith. And we don't. Now, we do liken faith to a muscle. We've all received the faith of Christ upon being born again, but we have to develop it. So we all have the same skeletal uh, muscular system, but we don't all have the same size muscles because we don't all work them out the same. But if faith was of the spirit, they'd all be equal. But it's not. Our spirit man is not a discipleship, but our heart is. So we have to develop our heart. Faith is a spirit, but it is not of the spirit. All men have faith, but all men have not the faith. Abraham was the father of faith, and he was dead spiritually. His faith to believe God rose out of his heart, not his dead spirit man. Same for every believer before the resurrection. So he operated in faith just like we do today. How else can you be born again? If faith is of the spirit, when does faith come to be born again if faith is of the spirit and you're dead spiritually? Now we're into a Calvinistic do loop. Number four, New Testament Christians can have an evil heart of unbelief. That one alone shoots a hole through it. Our spirit man cannot be evil. It is sealed with the Holy Spirit. But if we allow our heart to grow evil, it will cause us to, to, uh, to depart from God. Number five, Jesus said the heart produces all manner of evil. Our spirit man cannot sin if it's a new creature in Christ. It has been created in righteousness and true holiness. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 15, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. That's the first thing hearts produce is evil thoughts, murders, adulteries. That's coming out of my born-again spirit? I'm sorry, old-timer, sir, with all due respect, I appreciate your pioneering work, but you should have looked a little closer at that verse and tried to explain it. But I get it. They run out of time to pioneer. You get to that last tree and you can't cut down any more trees. It's time to go home to heaven. You bring that covered wagon or the hovering automobile as far as you can. You only get to Mars. You haven't made it to Jupiter yet. Hey man, praise God, you made it to the moon and Mars. At some point, you have to die and leave the next progression to the successor. Verse six, or point six, Jesus said, what comes out of a man's heart will defile him. The new creature is born again of incorruptible seed. It is not defiled. How can anything that truly comes out of our born-again spirit defile us? But what comes out of the heart 
does defile us. Number seven, the word of God must be sown in the hearts of men, but the spirit of man is born again of the word of God. Big distinction. They were born again of the word of God. And the word word in 1 Peter 2.23, being born again of the word of God, the incorruptible is the word logos. It is the written word. It is not rhema, the spoken word. So to think our spiritual DNA is the logos, the handwritten word of God. It's a big distinction we don't have time to cover. But we don't have to sow the word into our spirit, man. We sow it into our heart. Just because you're born again of the word of God doesn't mean you have God's word working in your heart. That's what discipleship is for. Just because somebody gets born again today doesn't mean they understand John 3:16 tonight. That has to be sown and written upon the tables of their heart. Eight, Christians must constantly purify their hearts. That's what James 4, 8 says to believers. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. <laughs> if our heart and spirit are the same, why do I have to purify my heart? Double-mindedness leads to the impure heart. Number nine, the Christian's heart must be established. The heart cannot be born against uh, the born-again spirit if it still lacks establishing. Hebrews says it's a good thing for the heart to be established in grace. Uh, why would our heart have to be established if it was seated in heavenly places? Number 10, New Testament Christians can harden their hearts through sin. We're warned to watch for, out for this hardened effect or hardening effect. So uh, again, these are proofs that the spirit and the heart cannot be the same thing. Number 11, we can be born again and have a heart that is not right with God. Uh, this was the case with Simon, the former sorcerer. Peter looked at him and says, your heart is not right with God. Repent. Pretty rough on a little baby Christian. Number 12, born again believers can deceive their own heart. James 1.26 teaches us that. Wait a minute, how can my heart deceive me or I deceive my heart if it's my spirit man? Notice all these wicked things associated with the heart. And we somehow managed to believe for a long time that the heart and the born-again spirit were identical. If that's the case, what was the point of getting saved? Number 13, the heart can be exercised, gymnazo. That's where we get the word gymnasium. With wicked practices like covetousness. So our heart can be exercised. And if it can be practiced or exercised in wicked ways, it can be exercised in good ways. Because it's totally up for grabs. The spirit man is baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. How can it be exercised with anything less than holiness? And a bonus, number 14. The believer's heart is often a source of condemnation. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Condemnation is not of God, therefore it cannot emanate from our recreated spirit man. All right, so let's look at this little list I made here. Born again spirit versus the heart. Born-again spirit, new creation. The heart, trained by the old man. Born-again spirit, created in righteousness. The heart condemns us regardless. Born-again spirit, created in true holiness. Heart, desperately wicked. Born-again spirit, incorruptible. Heart, incurably sick. Think about that. Our born-again spirit is born again of incorruptible seed, but the Bible says our heart is incurably sick. Incorruption versus incurable. Those are contradictions. What does it mean that our heart's incurably sick? It means just as soon as you heal your hatred for Josh, it breaks out on Hannah. And just as soon as you get your attitude right towards Hannah, you hate your government. And just as soon as you learn to pray for your government again, you hate your pastor. And just as soon as you get your, your fork addiction under control, you want to start vaping. 
It's incurably sick. It's always got something you're dealing with. Till the day we die, this is work. This is not for the faint of heart or for the lazy. The born-again spirit is alive unto God. The heart can be filled by Satan. Remember Peter told Ananias that, Ananias, why hath Satan filled your heart? That's to a born-again believer. Sunday morning church service, offering time. Your born-again spirit is alive unto God, but your heart can be filled by Satan. Are we wanting to say that our spirit man can be filled with Satan? No. Born-again spirit, born-again of God's word. The heart is the source of evil thoughts and adultery. As end-time Christians, we must understand the nature and mechanics of our heart. To gain a comprehension of these will help us to harness the power of discipleship, avoid the corruption of propaganda, rapidly adjust our attitudes, and build a faith that pleases God. An accurate definition must account for both lost and saved people having a heart while distinguishing between dead spirits and born-again spirits. Our accurate definition must also account for how a born-again believer can still have an evil heart from which they can produce evil treasures, yet still be capable of producing faith. Not a little gates to thread here. The rest of these lessons will seek to prove that the heart is the manifestation of the operation of the soul. And so my definition that I have there, I was given... Uh, back in 2008, at the bottom of the 229 stope at the zinc mine in Carthage, actually Gordonsville. And I had just taught on our Wednesday night service. We were teaching about the sin unto death, and I'd been pastoring like four or five months. And I talked about people using their faith to curse God and go to hell. And Susan Keith raised her hand, and she said, How... Can you use your faith to go to hell when faith is of the Spirit? And I said, because faith is not of the Spirit. Faith is of the heart. And we can develop a faith in our heart to curse Jesus Christ and condemn ourselves to hell. And everybody's heart sat down on me, and they reached for a rock under their chair. And I looked at the clock, and it was 8.30, and I said, and we're out of time. (laughs) And we dismissed, and I said, oh, God, I need help completing this doctrine that I've been scratching at at that point for only about seven or eight years. So between that Wednesday and the next Wednesday, every day I was underground at the zinc mine as a bivocational pastor. I said, oh God, give me the doctrine. Oh God, resolve this thing. So me and the surveyors were down at the bottom of the 229 stope. And I actually, I was just going down there to hang out underground because I didn't really do anything with them. And he spoke to me this definition and I had my field book as I did many times. And he said, the heart is the manifestation of the operation of the soul. And that answered everything for me. And I began to expound upon it. So I've added this. That is, it's the manifestation of the operation of the mind, the will, and the emotions of man, whether born again or lost. So then we added a further explanation for our benefit. The heart is whatever a man thinks and keeps on thinking, wants and keeps on wanting, and emotes and keeps on emoting. So if you want to change your heart, you change what you keep thinking on, you change what you keep wanting, and you change what you keep emoting. This is also how the devil sends us to hell and how he causes divorce and how he causes pornography. He attacks your mind with a fiery dart, and rather than cast it down as we're taught, we begin to dwell on it, and he seeds that thing, and we begin to think 
about how Jeff did me wrong. And I don't know if I could possibly forgive him. And, and, and the longer that thing smolders on our brain, the, the enemy knows, yep. And he shoots another one. And remember how Jeff did that to you once three years ago? I mean, this is a pattern for Jeff. And all of a sudden it turns our heart against Jeff when we used to have sweet fellowship together, just like Absalom with subtle words poisoned Israel against David because he changed the way they thought. And with the triune nature of the soul, you can't pull on the mind without pulling on the emotions and the will. Same with emotions. You can't pull on the emotions without affecting the will or the mind and vice versa. So our heart is whatever we think and keep on thinking, want and keep on wanting, emote and keep on emoting. And if you need to change your heart on anything, you change those three variables and stick with it. You'll change your heart. All right. We're going to spend the next six, seven, eight, nine weeks hashing this out because this is a pod school I've needed to have built for a long time. But if we've just been busy and I'll just have to sleep less and get it done. All right. Father, we thank you for these lessons. Bless all those that listen to our pod school. Bless those that are going to grab a hold of this doctrine. May it absolutely revolutionize how they see the word, how they see their heart, how they see the mechanics of faith. Help us, Lord, put a guard over our heart that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.